Well, we are here for Resurrection Sunday to celebrate the life, death, and most specifically the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and what that means for us as believers and really what that means for the whole world, that any sinner can have a right relationship with their Creator through faith in Christ and His life and His death and His resurrection and, of course, in His present rule and reign over all of creation as the King of kings and Lord of lords who will one, one day come to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate a new heaven and a new earth. That is our hope. That is why we're gathered here today, and that is why we gather every Sunday as well. It is a joy to be able to do that once again with each of you young men, women, and slightly older men and women, uh, for those of you who are serving in leadership roles. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in Sunday school, uh, which is right in the midst of looking at the theology of Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, a 5th century early church leader. And before we pick up where we left off, I just want us to be reminded of our key verse for this section. If you've got your workbook, somebody flip back over to the beginning of Lesson 6. And I do need a volunteer to read that key passage after I open us up with a word of prayer. I just want to make sure we're thinking about the overarching theme of this section in our curriculum. And that should help us just make a nice segue into what we'll be talking about today, just building on the themes that we talked about during our previous Sunday school lesson. So is somebody willing to read that for us after I pray? Witt's going to read it? Very good. All right, let me pray, and then we will dive right in. Lord God, thank you for Resurrection Sunday. Thank you for the fact that you sent your only begotten Son into this world in the fullness of time to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life without sin, to render perfect obedience and thought, word, and deed to your holy, righteous demands that we owe to you but can never render to you because of our sin. But Christ, the perfect, sinless God-man, he, he, he was perfect in every aspect of his life and because of his perfection for those who place faith in him his his righteousness is credited to them the believer and because christ went to the cross willingly where he offered himself up as a sacrifice for sin to you god all of the unrighteousness of believers from all time throughout human history that sin was paid for in full by Christ at the cross. And by virtue of receiving His righteousness through faith alone, the believer can know you as if we lived His perfect life because He was treated as if He had lived our imperfect lives. And God, the glory of the Gospel and of Resurrection Sunday is that though Christ lived a perfect life, though sin was perfectly atoned for at the cross, that's not the end of the story because after being put to death by crucifixion and living a or excuse me and suffering a true physical death father he rose victoriously from the grave three days later he appeared to more than 500 witnesses as the first fruits of the resurrection and 40 days after his crucifixion he ascended to your right hand and he has been at your right hand, reigning and ruling as the King of kings and Lord of lords, as the victorious Messiah for some 2,000 years. And 
we know because of Old Testament prophecy, New Testament prophecy, and his own declaration that he's coming back. He's going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to establish a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to make all things new. And we who know him through faith alone, we will reside with him, with all of the redeemed, with all the holy angels, with you, Father, with your Holy Spirit, forever and ever. We're going to enjoy perfect, endless, intimate communion as the family of God. And I pray that though today is such a special day because it draws peculiar attention to Christ's resurrection, I pray that every day of our lives, not just on Resurrection Sunday, not just on Sunday itself, but Father, that every day of our lives we would be reminded of the glory of the Gospel and that we would be shaped by these truths that are testified to in Your Word and Also throughout church history, which is what we'll be considering today, how godly figures from church history have taken the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints, and they have advanced the gospel, they have defended biblical truth, and they have sought for sinners to come to saving faith in Christ, that your kingdom would be advanced. Would we be faithful to those ends as well? Lord, would we be motivated as we leave this time of discipleship and the time of corporate worship at FBC Edna, would we be motivated to go into this world wherever you call us, to call sinners to repentance and faith, to love them as Christ loves sinners, and in doing so, Father, that we would be so concerned about their eternal well-being that we would do whatever it takes to point them to Christ through through our words and through our deeds. Bless this time of study now to those ends, God. May we honor you today and all the days of our lives as you are worthy to be honored. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, Wit, please read our key passage for this section of Forerunners of the Faith, and then we will pick up where we left off last week. Very good. So, what does that mean to you guys? Really, I want to maybe just ask you a thought-provoking question to get us started. Is the Apostle John, who is literally quoting from John the Baptist here, um, is he saying that there was no grace and truth prior to Christ coming into the world? Like, was God not gracious? Was He not truthful? Did His people not have those realities present in their lives prior to Christ? What's He saying there, if, if, if that's not what He's saying? I see a lot of heads shaking um, no, saying no, that there was grace, there was truth prior to Jesus coming. There's that He existed before, before like, Jesus existed, even before John the Baptist. Yeah. Yeah, he was, absolutely. But when, when speaking specifically of like the grace of God and the truth of God, um, be, that being present in the world amongst God's people, 
Um, you guys all instinctively know, yes, those things were present prior to Christ. But what do you think? What do you think John's getting at when he says it was realized when Jesus came? It was realized. It's all good. No, this is why I wanted to get your thoughts um, going. Samantha, what do you think? When you realize something, it becomes obvious. It's made known. Like That's what realizing something means. Um, and the way that it's used here, it's like it was there. It was just made known and made clear and obvious. There. Yeah, it was consummated. It was, it, was, it was its climax. It was made obvious, as Samantha said. That's exactly right. You see, all the Old Testament types foreshadows, prophecies, promises, all of those things that the people of God, remember, Old Testament saints, they looked forward with expectation that God was going to keep His promises. He was going to keep His Word through all of those Old Testament prophecies, promises, pictures, and so on, that a Messiah would come, a Savior would come, and be the once-for-all atonement for their sin so that they would have forgiveness of their sin and eternal life with God. They looked forward to that promise being fulfilled. And then when Christ came, it was all made manifest. It was all made obvious. It was all fulfilled. And all their hope, again, they had faith in Christ, the Christ to come. They had the same faith we did looking forward as we look backwards but when Christ came, this is what John's getting at, when Christ came, it was all made clear. All the shadows, all the prophecies, all the promises, all the pictures found throughout the Old Testament, it was all finally clear. It was clarified. It was realized. And we, again, as, as believers, we have the same faith as every Old Testament believer who's ever lived. Just as they looked ahead in faith to the promised Christ, we look backwards to the manifested Christ, to the Christ who has come. And in a lot of ways, we also live as Old Testament believers in one sense in that we look ahead to Christ's second coming in faith. We know He'll come back because God has never ceased to keep His Word. He always keeps His promises. So I just wanted us to get our minds there before we really dive into the crux of what we're going to be talking about with regard to the grace of God specifically. Does anybody remember what uh, St. Augustine was known as during his day? There's a nickname that people refer to him as. Anybody remember that from our previous lesson? The Doctor of Grace. Now how's that for a nickname? Pretty cool nickname. Might even sound a little weird to some of us, but I think it's pretty cool. Um, Augustine knew intimately well. He was, he was intimately acquainted with the grace of God because he had experienced the grace of God in his soul for himself. He saw it in Scripture. He experienced it himself. So he knew it both intellectually, he knew it experientially. And as we pick up from where we left off last week, I want us to look at the, this is towards the end of letter A, uh, the heading for that is Augustine and Grace, and there is, it's the final little arrow, I, mean, I guess you could call it a bullet point, but it's a little arrow, and, and the heading says this, under letter A, the gospel of grace precludes anyone from boasting 
about their salvation. There's two excerpts there that are quotes from Augustine. I want to have two volunteers read those excerpts if you have your workbook. And then I want us to just uh, make a few comments about those quotes after we read the corresponding scripture reference contained below. So can somebody, I'll read the passage from Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, and I need somebody to read those two quotes from Augustine for us if I can get some volunteers for that. So Hannah and Witt are going to be our volunteers. Great. So uh, one of y'all take the first and then the other take the second. The people who boast imagine that they are justified by their own efforts and therefore they glory in themselves and not in the Lord. All right. No man can say that it is by the merit of his own works or by the merit of his own prayers or by the merit of his own faith that God's grace has been conferred upon him. Nor suppose that the doctrine is true when those heretics hold that the grace of God is given Amen. Listen to the strong words that Augustine says at the very end. He says, um, No man can suppose that the doctrine is true which heretics hold. And what's that doctrine he's referring to? That the grace of God is given us in proportion to our own merit. How many of you guys have heard this? God helps those who help themselves. You know, there was, I can't remember the exact year, but every two years, Crossway, or um, it's either Crossway or Lifeway and Ligonier Ministries, they do a biannual state of theology survey. And in one of those surveys in previous years, one of the questions that was asked is kind of a, it was like, do you strongly disagree, somewhat disagree, somewhat agree, strongly agree, one of those things. And one of the questions was, is this biblical statement, God helps those who help themselves. And the majority of those who self-identified as evangelicals, which is what we would identify as, Protestant Christians, majority of those surveyed agreed. That's a biblical statement. My friends, not only is that quote nowhere found in Scripture, Augustine says that's a heretical statement. Because God never helps anybody who helps themselves. Why? Because there's nothing we can do to help ourselves. We are helpless as sinners. There's nothing we can do to help ourselves spiritually. God must be the one to save us to the uttermost. He must be the one to bring us to sanctification by the outworking of His Holy Spirit. And He also must be the one to take us home, to glorify us so that we can reside in His kingdom forever and ever. God is the author, the sustainer, and the perfecter of our faith from start to finish. And for the totality of our Christian life, He is the sum and the substance, the source of its vitality. Um, you know, when I read those words from Augustine, Galatians 1, 6-9 comes to mind. This, is, this should be a familiar passage for y'all. This is... Let me just set the context that undergirds this section, okay? The book of Galatians was likely the first book written in the entire New Testament canon. Most scholars put its dating sometime in the early to mid-40s A.D. Uh, comes right before the Jerusalem Council that we find in Acts 15, where there was a debate as to whether or not Gentile converts, and even Jewish converts, would have to abide by certain elements of the Old Testament law, namely circumcision. In other words, 
Is it enough? This is what the debate was. Is it enough just to believe in Jesus Christ? To believe the gospel? Is that enough? Or do you have to be circumcised? Do you have to abide by dietary laws? Do you have to abide by ceremonial festivals and and, and, and things that were proper to Old Covenant Judaism? Where does Old Covenant civil and ceremonial aspects of religion play into the Christian life? That's what was being debated in that particular time in the church. So when Paul writes Galatians, he is confronting that particular issue. And right out of the gate, right out of the gate in this letter, he says these words, speaking of those who are leaning towards, yeah, you've got to be circumcised. Yeah, you've got to abide by the ceremonial laws and regulations of Old Covenant Judaism. That's part of Christianity. This is what he says addressing that. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. He, he says, you guys are buying into a different gospel, a false gospel. And he continues, he says, it's really not another gospel because there's only one gospel. There's not a second or a third or fourth. He says, this, this false gospel, this different gospel, it's really not another gospel Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then he says these words which are terrifying. These words condemn every false religion in the world who teach that man can be made right with God by his own merit, by his own works. And this is especially applicable today as we think of Resurrection Sunday. As we think of what Jesus did. He says, even if we, referring to the apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. He says, hey, you've heard the gospel from us, the apostles. If we ever contradict this gospel, may we be accursed. If you ever hear an angel come to you and try to tell you something different than you've received from us, let them be accursed as well. Verse 9. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. He is to be under the wrath of God. So, my friends, this is where Augustine gets that that, that strong language from. He's saying that if you believe that God has given you grace in proportion to your own merit, if you believe God helps those who help themselves... If you believe that somebody is saved by any effort or, or merit of their own, they have believed a false doctrine, a false gospel. Paul says a different gospel. They're heretical is what Augustine says here. And we can make that same conclusion on the basis of what Paul says in that text we just read from Galatians 1. Now listen to this. This is from Buznitz here. Augustine did not always speak about justification with the same kind of consistency or clarity as the Protestant reformers did. He did have some areas in his theology that were inconsistent, as we all do. But nevertheless, nevertheless, Busnitz concludes, as the examples above demonstrate, both the examples we just read today and the examples going back to last week, the many, many citations we read from Augustine. Busnet says that Augustine clearly affirmed the truth that sinners are saved exclusively by God's grace alone, through faith alone, 
in Jesus Christ alone. And he quotes Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 to substantiate this reality. If you've got your workbook, you can follow along here. If you've got your Bible, you can as well. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Notice what Paul writes here. It's a little bit later on in his ministry, early 60s, during his first Roman imprisonment. This is maybe the heart and soul of the Gospel. If you wanted one of the clearest pictures of the Gospel in all of Scripture, this is one of the top places you'd probably want to turn to. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So, my question now, having said all of that about Augustine, about the Gospel, in conjunction with Galatians 1, 6-9, and now having read Ephesians 2, 8-10, what realities about salvation and sanctification do we find in that passage? What do we see about salvation and sanctification in Ephesians 2, 8-10. Let's make sure we're on the same page with terms now. What do we mean when we speak of salvation? Or if I could just make it even more narrower, justification. What are we saying when we speak of justification? Yeah, we're, 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 we're saved or we're declared righteous. We're justified just as if I never sinned. Justification. We are declared righteous in the sight of God. Okay? And then what do we mean when we speak of sanctification? What's that, Mikey? To be cleansed, right? To be set apart. To be conformed into the moral likeness or character of Jesus Christ. So how, in light of those definitions, what is Paul saying in these three verses? The, the, the epicenter of the Gospel in these three verses. What do we see here? Yeah, salvation is all of God's grace. And even sanctification, though in sanctification, when you and I exert our own effort to be made further into the likeness of Christ, it is only the grace of God propelling us to put Christ on display, propelling us to put sin to death, that we are able to be made more into Christ's likeness, that we are able to, as Paul writes here, Walk in good works which God prepared beforehand. Do you realize that God not only prepared your salvation from eternity past, He also prepared every good work you would ever walk in as a believer? And did you know that God's going to reward you for the works that He prepared for you to walk in? He's going to reward you for the things that He planned for you to do and enabled you to do. That is the gracious character of your Heavenly Father. He authored your salvation in eternity past. He accomplished it at the appointed time in redemptive history. And when you are further conformed into Christ's likeness, Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, they are the ones enabling you by their grace, by the grace of the trying God, they are enabling you to be made into Christ's likeness. And one day, you will be rewarded, again, by the grace of God, 
for that of which God enabled you to carry out in this life as a believer. That is, again, one of the many reasons why we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Why we're here every Sunday. Because of the, the unfathomable, unsearchable, incomprehensible grace of God. I mean, I can't even give, like, I'm trying to think of adjectives to put my arms around this. I can't even do it. There's no way you can do it. It is remarkable to think of God's grace. Does that make sense to you guys? Y'all, y'all tracking with me this morning here? Okay. Well, question for group discussion. You'll notice the green box if you have a workbook. Um, as it notes in that box, mercy refers to the withholding of a deserved punishment. Grace refers to the reception of of an undeserved blessing. In salvation, God extends both mercy and grace to us. What do Christians deserve that they will not receive? What will they receive that they do not reserve? So it's a two-part question. Sai, let's start with the first one. What do Christians deserve that they will not receive? They deserve that's right. We deserve hell. It was well said by Jonathan Edwards. Let's throw this into the equation. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Our sin is what made salvation necessary. And if left to ourselves, as Sai said, if left to ourselves, the only thing that we could earn or deserve by our own merit is hell. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we know that Christians deserve hell. They're not going to receive it. God shows mercy in that regard, right? He withholds giving what we are deserving to receive. What? Okay, now part two. What will Christians receive that they do not deserve? So we've said Christians deserve hell. They deserve judgment for their sin. What is it that they're going to receive instead that they don't deserve? Hannah. Right. Salvation. Relationship with God. Heaven. All those things. And what do we say when we speak of God giving that of which is undeserved? What is the term that we use? Grace. Right. Very good. Um, So, as Augustine well stated throughout the course of this portion of our lesson, the grace of God is immense. And that takes us now to letter B. Letter B, titled Augustine and Truth. I want to read a few sentences here from Buznitz before we begin to look more at Augustine's convictions on truth. Buznitz notes, in addition to emphasizing the fact that salvation is by grace alone, Augustine also declared his allegiance and submission to the word of truth, which is the Bible. The Bible is the word of truth. And Augustine recognized that Because it comes from God, Scripture is free from error. To state that another way, Augustine affirmed that the Bible is absolutely true. Does anybody know what term we use? If you're taking notes, good term to take note of if you don't know the term um, off the cuff here. But what do we speak of when we say the Bible is true or without error? It's a technical term. Um, Rob Lyerly mentioned it when he was here for Encounter as well as Eric Weathers. Huh? Inerrant, that's right. Biblical inerrancy. 
When we say that the Bible is without error, that it's absolutely true, we're saying the Bible is inerrant. It is without error. And this is a conviction that Augustine had. There's three excerpts from Augustine right below this um, right below this heading, you'll notice that in your workbooks, right under letter B, Augustine and Truth, you'll see three quotes there. I need three volunteers to read from those quotes. Can I get three volunteers, please? Samantha will take the first. Hannah will take the second. Who wants to take the third? Somebody with a workbook. All right, Witt's going to take the third. Very good. Very good. Now, let me ask you guys this. Do we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture because Augustine believed in the inerrancy of Scripture? No. Why do we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Because God inspired Scripture. That's... Now, let me ask you guys this. Is the doctrine of biblical inerrancy something that we just found because we studied Scripture and we just discovered, hey, there's no errors in here? Or does the Bible bear witness to its own inerrancy? There's witness. Absolutely. Let's look at how many passages did I find. I picked three from the Old Testament and three from the New Testament. So I need six people. Six volunteers. Yep. And if you've got... Yeah, and Sai's excited because he has some already marked. Um, Numbers 2319. Uh, Jacob. Uh, Witt takes Psalm 19.7. Michael takes Psalm 119.160. Emma, take John 10.35. Sai, take John 17.17. 17. Who wants? And Hannah, take 2 Timothy 2.15. There's more text than this, guys, but these are some of the most clear. Some of the most clear passages that pertain to our confidence in Scripture being without error. Um, whoever has numbers. numbers, yeah, go for it. Yeah, 19. yeah, twenty three nineteen. Yes, sir. Very good. So, okay, so I started with this text for a particular reason. It affirms that God does not lie. It affirms that if He says something, He's going to do it. Okay, if he says that he's going to do something, he makes good on his word. Okay, so if that's true about God, and if he's given us a Bible that claims to be his word, then, you know, just by that text alone, we can say, okay, well, if God does not lie, and if he says something he's going to do it, then his word's also got to follow his own character. Well, the next passage in Psalm 19 confirms that inference. It's explicitly stated. So whoever had Psalm 19.7, take that one. There you go. The law of the Lord. The Word of God. That's what that's saying. The, the reference to the law of God, the, it's, it's tantamount to saying the Word of God. His written Word 
is perfect. That was the conviction of David riding under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's also going to be the conviction of Christ, as we'll see in just a few moments. But right there, you have an affirmation made about God. Now you have an affirmation made about His Word. God is true. He doesn't lie. He makes good on His promises. His Word is also true. It's perfect. It doesn't have any errors in it. Psalm 119, 160. Michael, take that one, please. Very good. The sum of your word, whether spoken or written, the sum of God's word is truth. Pretty straightforward there. Um, John ten thirty five. Who had that one? All right, go for it. Very good. So that's kind of weird. It's in the middle of a sentence, but the little the little statement there um, for broken and some. In some translations, it says the scripture cannot be nullified. Uh, the Greek term there is closer to nullified. It can't be. It cannot be proven to be false. It cannot fail to accomplish its purposes. That's coming from the lips of Christ in the midst of a long uh, explanation. There, he's interacting with Jewish religious leaders and those who opposed him, challenging. His authority, just previously he called himself the bread of life in John 6. He called himself the good shepherd here in John 10. He's taught some hard truths about his sovereignty and salvation. And now he's basing his reasoning in the scripture that he says cannot be nullified. It can't be proven as false. It's true. That's Christ's conviction about God's word. John 17, 17. This is in the high priestly prayer right before he's handed over to be crucified. Who had John 17, 17? There you go, Cy, whenever you're ready, buddy. Amen. So God, Father, Jesus prays, set your people apart in the truth, make them holy in the truth, and what is the source of that truth? It's your word. Your word, Father, that word you have spoken so clearly and that word that has been recorded throughout the pages of Holy Writ. It's truth. And that's the means you're going to use to sanctify your people. 2 Timothy 2.15. And there it is. This was Paul's exhortation to Timothy. Paul's going to be put to death shortly after writing this letter. It's the last letter he wrote in the New Testament. He's saying, Timothy, in your pastoral efforts, in your ministry endeavors, you need to accurately handle the word of truth. And that's our calling as well, my friends. You and I are called to accurately interpret, accurately apply God's word in evangelism and in discipleship. It's our calling as believers. So Augustine viewed Scripture as inerrant. Because the Word of God testifies to its own inerrancy. But Augustine also believed in the authority of Scripture. He believed that there is no higher authority than what can be found in God's Word. Because if Scripture is God's Word, then it carries with Him the same authority as God Himself. And because God is God, there can be no higher authority than Him. Uh, There's also another term, you know, these kind of go hand in hand. You have the authority of Scripture 
and the sufficiency of Scripture. Those, those are really two intertwined realities. When we say that Scripture is authoritative, we're thereby saying Scripture is absolutely sufficient for equipping God's people with everything they need to know for life and godliness. You're saying that we don't have everything that we could ever know in Scripture, but what we have is sufficient. God's given us a sufficient record to know how to have a relationship with Him, how to be saved from our sin and saved from His wrath, and how to live for His glory. So, let's look at what Augustine says here in these quotes. I see several. What we're going to do by way of breaking it up, because I do have some Scripture references I want us to mix in here. Um, There are... Let's see, three quotes. The next three quotes in your workbook. Let's read those, and then I have some scriptures to solidify what we're seeing from Augustine. Um, So who wants to read the Augustine quote that begins with the words, this mediator? Samantha, thank you. The next one just says, therefore, Thomas, thank you, brother. And then the next one says, in the innumerable books. Michael, you don't have a workbook, so you need to go find somebody who does. Maybe go back there and read off of somebody's workbook. I like the hey, I like the enthusiasm, though, brother. Really like the enthusiasm. Uh, Samantha, whenever you're ready, take it away. Right. Right. Do y'all remember that term, by the way? We talked about this actually um, Thursday night, I believe it was. It wasn't in the lesson. It was in our fellowship time. Um, it starts with a P. It, it, what Samantha's getting at is that, hey, we're all worshiping the same God. We're just doing it in different ways. We're all different. Sli- yep, that's part of it. That's one of them. No, that's that's close. That's that's. That's inextricably linked. Postmodernism believes that it's impossible to know that there's such thing as objective truth. There is no objective truth. It's impossible to know that there's objective truth. That's, that goes hand in hand with what Samantha's saying. But there's also another P word that talks about, hey, just different slices of the pie, all just one perspective on worshiping God. Or if you want to make it in terms of a knowledge of the truth, we're all, just diff- we're all one different perspective of truth. There's truth. Nobody has a claim on truth. We're all just one little section of trying to understand truth. That word is pluralism. Plural is a P-L-U-A-R. Okay, there it is. Listen to the spelling. Listen to the spelling person. I already messed it up. This is why I need autocorrect on my phone and my, my sermon manuscripts. But pluralism, that's what pluralism is, guys, and that goes hand-in-hand with postmodernism, is if you believe that there's no such thing as objective truth, nobody has a foothold on truth. Nobody has a claim to truth. You're you're just, hey, you're you're no different than anybody else around the campfire. Anyways, Samantha, thanks for bringing that up. There's a lot, guys. I think it was in, I don't know which year it was, but in one of the years, like, 78% of Christians 
said that Jesus was a created being of God the Father. Which, remember what that heresy is called? Starts with an Arianism. That a boy, Michael. That's right. It's Arianism. So they, you know, almost four out of five Christians, according to that survey, hold to an ancient heresy. That's kind of scary. But Samantha, go ahead and take that quote away for us, please. This mediator, having spoken what he judged sufficient, first by the prophets, then by his own lips, and afterwards by the apostles, has besides produced the scripture which is called canonical, which has paramount authority, and to which we yield assent in all matters of which we ought not to be ignorant, and yet cannot know of ourselves. Very good. Therefore, everything written in scripture must be believed absolutely. Right, and then in the innumerable books, read that quote for us, Michael. Very good. I love that. Scripture has a sacredness peculiar to itself. I love how he put that there. Um, it's in its own class, the Word of God. It's it's. There's nothing you can compare it to. Uh, and there's some, some scripture references that I found, Old Testament and New Testament, that speaks to the authority and the sufficiency of scripture. Um, Old Testament passages, uh, Joshua 23.6. Somebody want to read that text for us? Joshua 23.6 with Psalm 119.89. Emma, Isaiah 48, 40 verse 8. Um, Jacob, Sai, you can take Matthew 5, 17 to 19. I need somebody to take Luke 16, 17. My, Michael. And 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. Somebody over here raise your hand. Oh, I thought you were pointing over here. Oh, Hannah, you want to take that one? What, which one you're reading? 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. And again, we're, we're looking here to think of how is Scripture by its own testimony authoritative for the Christian life? How is it sufficient for the Christian life? What is Augustine getting at in making these assertions? Where from Scripture does he arrive at these conclusions? That's what we're looking for here. So whenever, I don't know, who's reading Joshua again? I lost, I'll, all right, with... Go ahead and take that away for us, please. Yeah, look at that. Be very firm to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. Like the Old Testament Israelites, their longevity as a nation, was inextricably linked to their faithfulness to obeying what God said in the Pentateuch, in the Old Testament law, the first five books of the Old Testament. God gave them very strict ordinances that were authoritative. And he says, Deuteronomy 30, here's the blessings I'm going to give you if you keep these ordinances. Conversely, if you... Don't, and he even actually tells them, you're not going to do these things. But if you don't, and when you don't, here's what I'm going to do in judgment. So, so Joshua is just reiterating, this 
book of the law, this set of commands that God has given the Israelites, they are authoritative, they are sufficient. And of course, we now having the the wholeness of God's word, the totality of Scripture's canon, we have all of Scripture that is authoritative and sufficient. We can glean insights from the whole canon. Psalm 119.89. Who's taking that one? Look at that. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled. Your word is established. It's final. It's authoritative. And therefore, it's sufficient. Isaiah 40, verse 8. Yeah, creation, they're only going to be here for a season. They're, they're passing away. God's word stands forever. God's word will be the ultimate standard of authority and truth and righteousness forever and ever and ever. If I could say it like this even, because Jesus is literally God's word, the second person of the Trinity, God's word has existed as long as God has existed. And because God created time itself, there is no way of even being able to measure how long God's word has existed. It just simply is. Hope that kind of blows your mind. It blows my mind, certainly, just thinking about it. Matthew 5, 17 to 19. Amen. So look at what Christ is saying there. He said, hey, uh, verse 17, I'm the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. I came to fulfill everything in the Old Testament that needed to be fulfilled by the Messiah. Verse 18, the law will not be annulled. It's going to be accomplished all the way down to the smallest letter or stroke. And then verse 19, If any of you, referring to his audience out there, which would have had many religious leaders, Jewish teachers, and authorities there, he's saying, don't you dare try to undermine the authority of God's word, of his law. It is paramount for you to recognize and submit to its authority. The one who keeps and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And conversely, the one who does not will be called least. Very important. uh, Jesus had a very high view of the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Luke 16, 17. Think about that. Do you think it'd be easy for creation just to vanish into thin air? Like think of our think of like the universe right now. Think about how big, how vast, how complex it is. I mean, we're literally smaller than a speck of sand in comparison to the universe. And you know what Jesus is saying there? 
He said it would be easier for all of that just to pass away, to vanish. And one day he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth and he's going to do just that. He's going to vaporize our current creation and he's going to establish a brand new one that is not marred by sin. He's going to make all things new. And Jesus is saying that's easier than for a, the smallest iota of God's word to fail. That's how high of a view Christ had of the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Amen. So look at that. Was Scripture written by men or by God? Only by God? Only by man? The, hey, you know how you answer that question? Yes. Was Scripture written by God or by man? The answer to that question is yes. Both and, not either or. It's a mystery. Guys, look at it like this. Okay, let me give you a very easy way of thinking about it. Think about God's absolute sovereignty over everything that will ever happen in the history of creation and the, 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 the free choices that are made by creatures. Man's responsibility, God's sovereignty, those things, how do they come together? Mind can't fully wrap its mind around. Same thing with how Scripture was authored and inspired. God inspired the human authors in such a way that everything they wrote in their own freedom accomplishes everything God wanted on paper. And yet, God doesn't overstep any human boundaries in their writing styles, in their theological emphases, in their themes, in what issues they were writing about. Let that, let that sink in. How in the world does that happen? Human mind can't fully comprehend it. It's a mystery. But it's taught in the Word of God. We accept those truths by faith. The Scripture is authoritative. It's sufficient. It's also inerrant as we have seen, not just from Augustine, but also from the Word of God itself. And you know, some people may say, well, why study Augustine? I mean, if, if the Bible already says these things, then what's the point of even quoting from Augustine? Here's the point, guys. It's to show y'all that when you come to conclusions about Scripture's inerrancy, about Scripture's authority, about Scripture's sufficiency. When you see those truths taught in Scripture, it is so encouraging to know you're not the first one who's ever noticed that. That those are the same convictions that God's people have had for millennia. And you, by virtue of being an adopted son or daughter of God in Christ, you stand in a long line of godly men and women who have been holding the rope, as it were, for some 2,000 years. You're not alone. You're part of a heritage. And we need to be aware of that heritage for our own encouragement. And when we hear criticisms today, hey, nobody ever thought about the inerrancy of Scripture till the 20th century. That's a, that's a post-enlightenment construct. No, it's not. I just read from Augustine time after time after time. He's affirming these same truths. Very important things for us to be aware of. Now, there's five more quotes from Augustine. And each of these quotes are they're really just further emphases on everything we've just touched on regarding Scripture's authority, sufficiency, and inerrancy. Um, they're included in our workbooks, though, so I want us to read from them. 
and then we'll conclude with a time of group discussion. So, um, five volunteers to read these five quotes. The first one is the quote that starts, let those things be removed. So who would like to start there? Hannah, take that one. And we'll just go right down the list. We need four more volunteers. Wit will take the second. Who wants to take number three? Michael wants to take the third. Who wants to take number four? Someone with a workbook. Cy will take number four and number five. Um, maybe Samantha can take the fifth. How about that? It's kind of a lengthy one. All right. So, Hannah, take that first quote whenever you're ready. Sorry, go ahead. There let us seek the church. There let us discuss our case. Thank you. So those two quotes there, guys, in context, Augustine's saying this. Hey, if we're going to have disputes in the church, if there's going to be controversy in the church about doctrine or practice, as important as it is to have other resources to clarify our own thought on certain subjects, the ultimate standard that we go to is Scripture. If there's ever a dispute about God's Word, about it, what it teaches, or about how it should be lived out, Scripture itself is what we go to to resolve those controversies, to resolve those debates. Because again, commentaries, articles, books, those are helpful aids, but that's not where we go to ultimately. It's the Scripture. That's the standard. Now, it doesn't mean we throw those things out. We've, we've belabored this point. We've spent the past six, seven months studying church history, for crying out loud. We recognize that there is great help outside of Scripture to better understand Scripture. But Scripture is the ultimate standard, the ultimate authority. It's where we go to to resolve our disputes in the church. Quote number three. Amen. So he so he's saying there, uh, don't you want to talk about Arianism's belief? Let's talk about the scripture. Council of Nicaea, yeah. We can quote the Council of Nicaea, but let's go to the scripture because I'm going to show you from scripture why Arianism is false. Again, another testimony to the scripture's authority for sound doctrine. Quote four. Very good. And Samantha, read that last one. What more shall I teach you than what we read in the Apostle? For Holy Scripture fixes the rule of our doctrine, lest we be wiser than we ought. Therefore, let it not be for me to teach you any other thing except to expound to you the words of the divine teacher and to treat them as the Lord will have given to me. Very good. Now, specifically that final quote, but it's, you know, in the fourth quote as well, you, you see it being emphasized. Um, that if you go outside of Scripture for any 
matter pertaining to faith and practice, to doctrine and living, you're being, in Augustine's words, quote, wiser than you ought. You are going outside the bounds of what you should be doing as a believer. Christians should be so consumed with mastering the Word of God that they would never dare go further in trying to come up with what they should believe about Christianity or how they should live. You know, so many people today, they look for signs. They, they look for dreams. They try to hear some sort of voice from God to tell them what they should do in any particular situation regarding what they should believe or how they should live. My friends, if it's anything we've seen from God's Word and from Augustine throughout the course of the past two studies, I pray it's this. You've got everything you need in Scripture and you'll never master this resource in your entire life. Stop looking for signs. Stop listening for mystical voices. Stop putting stock into dreams and experiences. Focus your undivided efforts on maximizing your ability to understand Scripture and to apply Scripture. That'll be a lifelong endeavor that you'll never be able to exhaust. You'll never be able to fully do that. Never going to be able to. Buznitz concludes this section, letter B, Augustine and Truth, with these words. A millennium after Augustine, the Protestant reformers rallied around these same convictions, that the Word of God is inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient. Though the reformers did not agree with Augustine on every theological nuance, they greatly appreciated his emphasis on the undeserved nature of God's grace and the authoritative truth of God's Word. And that takes us to the final question for discussion that we'll look at before we wrap up our time today. Somebody pull up 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. Okay, what's going to read that for us? And after he reads those verses, we're going to look to the rest of this question. So Whit, read those verses for us, and then we're going to turn to this question before we close. as you note there, if you have your workbook in the green box, those verses that we just read from 2 Timothy 3, they highlight the inspiration, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture. So by way of follow-up, what does it mean that the Bible is sufficient, and what are the practical implications of that reality? So we say that the Bible is sufficient. What are we saying? Again, summarizing what we've talked about today. You've got to put it in your own words in a sentence. What do we mean when we say the Bible is Sufficient. What do we mean when we say the Bible is sufficient? Sai, what are we talking about here? Um, the, the Bible is enough. We, it fulfills what we can. Yeah, the Bible is enough. It fulfills... Um, I didn't catch the last part about that. It fulfills what we cannot fulfill. Uh, okay. That's not bad. No. I know where you're going. I know where you're going with that. Wait, what do you think? It says that like God, the 
Okay, ultimate authority, very good. Hannah? Yeah, we don't need to add anything to Scripture. That it, in and of itself, is the ultimate standard for what we believe and how we live. And there is no need to look anywhere else because God's given us everything that we need. We don't have everything that we could ever know in Scripture. There's a lot of things that Scripture would say belongs to the Lord. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that have been revealed to us belong to us and our children forever. That is to say that there's things that God, for reasons known only to Himself, He was not pleased to reveal to us in God's Word. But what He has revealed in God's Word, that is absolutely authoritative and it's absolutely sufficient for every aspect of our spiritual life. I hope these truths have been thought-provoking to consider today and Lord willing, during our time together next week in Sunday school, we'll be looking at the next of the 5th century patristic theologians that are highlighted in Forerunners of the Faith, namely John Chrysostom. Looking forward to looking a little bit at his life and his theology as well uh, during our gathering together next week in Sunday school. So let me pray, close this out, and I hope you guys have a blessed Resurrection Sunday with your loved ones. May we honor Christ on this sacred day. Let us pray. Father, thank you for raising up men like Augustine and women like him as well who have in generations past sought to champion and defend the inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture and that they would be willing, in light of going to Scripture, they would be willing to defend the free grace that you offer in the gospel to all who will ever believe that salvation is not anything that could be earned or deserved by human sinful creatures but rather father that salvation and even sanctification and glorification are all extensions of undeserved favor they are lavishing of grace upon those you've created in your image God, would those truths permeate the very fabric of our souls? Would they cause us to exalt you in worship, to adore you with greater measures in this life? God, would we be not just growing in our head knowledge as we think about truths from your word and, and, and truths from figures in church history who have reflected on Scripture and have codified doctrinal affirmations and negations about Scripture? Would that not merely puff us up in head knowledge, but God, would it humble us? Would it sanctify us? Would it help us to be the men and women You've called us to be in Christ? I pray as we leave this time of discipleship, that as we meditate on the Gospel and on the glory of the resurrection, that we would worship You from the hearts today this week and all the days of our lives. And Lord, that we would, as we have opportunities to do so, that we would testify about these great truths to our loved ones, to our friends, to our coworkers, and that we would live them out so that our lifestyles would be consistent with what we profess. Keep us safe as we depart from this time of worship, Father. We love you so much, and we thank you for loving us first in Christ Jesus, for it is in his name we pray. Amen.